Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about McKinnon, Rousseau, and conceptions of equality. Uh, this, this episode is Edmund's idea. It's a great combination. We've got, on the one hand, McKinnon, who is, uh, for Paul One, the Cambridge first-year paper, uh, replacing Carl Schmidt uh, and taking uh, her, own, her very own slot on Paul One. And on the other side, we've got Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, of course, occupies a central position on Paul Eight, the uh, History of Political Thought, 1700 to 1890 paper, kind of the middle series in the History of Political Thought series here at Cambridge. Uh, and I think that McKinnon is an interesting person to run with because McKinnon has got a quite, quite fixed view of where gender inequality comes from, a kind of naturalized pre-political notion of gender inequality. And because of this, inequality isn't just something that's socially constructed or socially produced. It's something that for McKinnon exists by nature. And if we don't do something to intervene in it, it will persist and it will affect every interaction that takes place among people. So, for McKinnon, it's not just that, say, the state is, for her, dominated by men. It's also that the state, when it chooses to be silent in, say, the private sphere in the home, permits men to dominate women. Mm. Because for McKinnon, if left to their own devices, men will, by nature, tend to dominate women. Mm. And women will, by nature, tend to be subordinated or subjugated by men. So much so that McKinnon is often said to kind of equate maleness with domination and femaleness with subordination yeah, uh, to the point where some feminists find, find this robs women of agency uh, more broadly. Yeah. But I think it's an interesting account because unlike, say, Plato or Aristotle, who, who certainly believe in a level of natural inequality, um, those theorists think that because that natural inequality is natural, that there is some kind of basis for respecting it. And they build states that reflect and build in that natural inequality. So for Aristotle, there are natural masters and there are natural slaves. So you build a state that has got a role for the natural master and a role for the natural slave that reflects the natural division. Uh, you know, Plato makes the argument that there are people with different kinds of souls, with different orientations toward different goods or different conceptions of goods. And you know, for Plato, it is very, very important that the society be structured in a way which reflects this and gets the right people with the right kinds of souls into the right roles. In the case of McKinnon, while the inequality is going to be naturalized, she is still going to argue that we ought to try to socially or politically eliminate that natural inequality. Hmm. And that's a quite distinctive position because, of course, if an inequality is natural, then it, it, that implies that there's something quite difficult about it to eliminate. 
Mm. And this is part of what makes McKinnon's theory a, a rather curious theory, because if for McKinnon, and she, she makes this case, that when women acquire power in the public sphere, this stems from their subordination in the private sphere. So for McKinnon, when women get public influence, it's on male terms. And therefore, that public influence reflects and has to triangulate with male dominance. Mm. And for that reason, it seems very hard on this theory to imagine a way in which, without, say, totally overthrowing or overturning society, you would actually manage to politically address the natural inequality. Yeah. In contrast, on, on the other side of this episode, we've got Rousseau. And for Rousseau, there is some natural inequality, but the natural inequality isn't really the problem. For him, the natural differences in, say, height or appearance or um, intellect are not so great as to be the basis for social division. Mm. But for Rousseau, when we start to interact with each other socially, this tends to give rise to political inequalities inequalities that are socially constructed in nature. And those socially constructed inequalities for him result in competitions for status among people, uh, what Rousseau calls amor propre, the love of the other, this kind of desire to get everyone to love you the way that you love yourself, a society which reflects one's own self-love. And in this way, the individual is kind of pitted against the community and pitted against other individuals in this kind of constant clamoring for, for more status and more wealth. And this gradually debases the, the natural person, which for Rousseau is a person of great dignity and all sorts of virtues and so on. And so through coming into society, people become ever more distant from those notions of virtue. And, and I say people, but for Rousseau, it's men, because Rousseau always, always uses the masculine term. Um, and yet, so Rousseau is going to say that even though we have now become debased by this social state of affairs, that there is some kind of way to transcend it and get back out of it if we form a social contract that uh, enlists us to formulate together and to comply with a general will, a general will which reflects and encompasses all of the individual wills in a people. Mm. The difficulty, of course, is that because we've been under Amor proper and under this society that for Rousseau is quite corruptive, we have to somehow get the individual wills into alignment with the general will before we can expect this general will to produce the spontaneous compliance of all of these individual wills. And to do that, Rousseau has this, this kind of lawgiver, this Lycurgus figure who shows up and reconfigures the institutions in a way which aligns individual will with general will, kind of aligns the individual interest with the collective interest in mm. such a way that you will recognize your own individual interest in the collective interest without having to be pushed around or intervened with very much. Mm. And so this lawgiver is supposed to do this, supposed to reorganize the institutions in this way and then permit those institutions to function. So the lawgiver is not supposed to rule people in any kind of direct sense. And in places, 
Rousseau talks about the lawgiver as almost a kind of ethereal, beyond human figure. Mm. And yet he also compares the lawgiver to Lycurgus, and Lycurgus is the kind of mythical, you know, semi-mythical figure who gives Sparta the law. Mm. And after giving Sparta the law, then, of course, goes away, gives up the crown, gives up rule, and goes away. And ancient history, ancient political thought is kind of riddled with examples of these lawgivers, these orders of republics who show up, they give the law, and then they go away. Or they show up, they solve the crisis, and then they step back. You know, like Cincinnatus in the Roman case, who shows up, solves a political crisis, and then goes back to his farm. Doesn't stay, mm. doesn't try to be king, doesn't try to consolidate power around himself, around a dynasty, doesn't try to be a king. Mm. And so it's interesting how Rousseau's theory and Rousseau's strategy for getting around this inequality, which he has denaturalized, he's denaturalized political equality, said that it is uh, a social construction. But his way of getting around it is this rather curious lawgiver figure mm. with a rather vague entry point, exit point, origin story. And you'll see interpretations of Rousseau that read the lawgiver in lots of different ways. Some people will act like the lawgiver is some kind of totalitarian figure, you know, a sovereign dictator in a kind of Schmidtian sense. Other people will discount the lawgiver as some kind of religious reference or, or you know, not, not actually of this earth and, and minimize the role the lawgiver plays in the theory. I think it's somewhere in between. I think what he wants is, is basically a Lycurgus type. That's my impression, at least, as I, as I read it. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite curious that Rousseau in the chapter on the legislator in the, not particularly big, big book, The Social Contract, but the legislator is a very small chapter. He, he says that the legislator can compel uh, without violence and persuade without convincing so that the people might obey willingly and bear submissively the yoke of the public welfare. So it's quite a curious suggestion that he's making. Um, and he admits that the problem is that it's both an enterprise surpassing human powers and, uh, he says, to execute it, an authority that is a mere nothing because the legislator is not quite the Hobbesian sovereign. He's just this as you say, this Lysurgicus figure who just comes along and goes away. Uh, but at least, at least Rousseau is admitting um, that uh, these inequalities um, that he's talking about are things that um, should be addressed politically. The, the problem is that the mechanism by which he suggests we address them is a somewhat difficult one to manage. Whereas is with McKinnon the point that to bite that bullet, to bite the bullet of pre-political inequality, I guess McKinnon would somehow have to do something like uh, what Shalemith Firestone does in her book, the 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 and the dialectic of sex, the case uh, for um, feminist revolution, where she argues that it's through artificial reproduction, through and kind of an automation of um, of um, baby making that we can overcome the biologically produced inequality of the sexes and that kind of technological resolution changing human nature if human nature is the problem then we need to change human nature it seems like a, a more plausible way to bite that pre-political bullet uh, than 
um, McKinnon's case, which seems, as you pointed out, to uh, fall into that contradiction of, hey, this inequality is pre-political, um, but hey, let's try to address it politically when those two claims are kind of contradictory. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting how both of these arguments end up requiring some kind of major revision to human nature, right? Like the Featherstone ar- argument yeah. involves kind of biologically re-engineering people to make them fundamentally different from the way that they used to be. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And on the other side, uh, in the Rousseau case, the legislator is supposed to reconfigure the socializing institutions and re-socialize people yeah, yeah. so that they are more uh, collaborative yeah, yeah, and more more capable of of cooperating at some scale. Uh, one of the things that I think is worth pointing out is that Rousseau himself you know, spent a lot of time in Geneva and may have been thinking about relatively small scale city states when he's writing this. It's not necessarily the case that Rousseau is imagining this working at the level of France or the United States or yeah. a big, you know a big nation state. Yeah, and indeed, like Kurgis is a a city state figure, not some founder of a gigantic republic. John Calvin. Just a small city-state. John Calvin, anyone? <laughs> he cites Calvin at the end of, in one of his footnotes, as like a modern possible Lycurgus-like figure to write the rules and then have them be implemented magically. Yeah. <laughs> and Machiavelli also, you know, Machiavelli's another theorist who heaps some praise on these orders of republics, although he's not expecting them to do anything about inequality. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there does seem to be, and it's interesting because on the one hand, you could kind of read it like the old uh, Caesar, Weber, and Charisma episode we did is, as maybe this lawgiver is a very charismatic figure. Mm. And on the other hand, you could read it in a more ethereal way as a kind of uh, divine source of inspiration or quasi-divine source of inspiration. Yeah. More along the lines of the Augustine Schmidt episode. Yeah. Because- uh, one of the things Rousseau does argue is that if you expect to unite everyone together, you've got to have some kind of, in his view, uh, religious doctrine that unifies people. Mm-hmm. And so it, that opens the possibility that perhaps the lawgiver could be semi-mythologized. Yeah, yeah. But does that mean the lawgiver is being, that the lawgiver doesn't exist in human form at all, or does it mean that the lawgiver is partially mythologized even as they do exist in human form or these kinds of questions are hard to answer yeah um, i think it's a lycurgus type though that's that's the kind of middle road interpretation of rousseau i like where the lawgiver is neither irrelevant nor is nor is the lawgiver the the kind of totalizing force but the lawgiver has this yeah. i show up i make it right then i go away right quality yeah, yeah. And they may use religion as a kind of legitimation story. And he cites Machiavelli, um, who wrote Discourses in the Divi, that there was never in a nation any promulgator of extraordinary laws who had not recourse to God, um, because um, there are many advantages recognised by a wise man which are not so self-evident uh, that they can convince others without having this invocation of divine authority. But I guess then it's more of a legitimation story, um, quite simply, than uh, than the overarching um, um, 
principle of the state or it's it might be something that's a bit more soft um a soft to the legitimation story than uh than what rousseau might be suggesting uh, yeah and it also bears mentioning that for machiavelli there are orders of religions too there are people right. who create religions just as there are people who create republics and and that's another task that might be up to the lawgiver and of right. course if we think about someone like robespierre robespierre is quite involved in promulgating the cult of the supreme being. Yeah. Uh, Robespierre, for those uh, who may not be aware, uh, is the kind of leading Jacobin figure during the French Revolution. Yeah. And he does try to promulgate an alternative religion. Yeah, yeah. And it's because I think uh, of all of the kind of big canon authors, Rousseau has perhaps the most influence on the French Revolution. Yeah. And it's interesting how these kind of central charismatic figures in the revolution uh, are able to retain a significant amount of support, even though the way that they're governing doesn't look very democratic at all. Yeah. Doesn't look very egalitarian at all. And I wonder to what extent the lawgiver plays a role in substantiating that. Right. Yeah. In a similar kind of way with Napoleon, Napoleon has a lot of support initially from Siez, one of the uh, great minds of the French Revolution, when he comes in. But Napoleon loses a lot of his revolutionary support after he crowns himself emperor, because when he crowns himself emperor, that indicates that he doesn't intend to go away. Mm. Right. Yeah. So he ceases to be that legislator from the social contract. Yeah, yeah. I think he ceases to look like he could credibly be the legislator at that stage. Is there also a role that the concept of the general will plays in this? Or is is the Jacobin, is the way in which Robespierre might have thought about what he was doing is something more akin to um, trying to create the general will, trying to create that alignment? Is there also a role that the very concept of having a, a general will, a single will of um, the state, of the people, um, of the nation, plays in um, leading to outcomes which uh, don't permit um, a plurality of voices in the state? That's the thing about, say, counter-revolutionary sentiment, right? So the idea yeah. that you know, there's counter-revolutionary sentiment... right? It's, this is not to say that the individuals who have counter-revolutionary views want to have those views or choosing to have those views. But if you are trying to unpack all of this institutional baggage yeah. that you believe is corrupted and kind of run down the people and deprive them of their liberty and their equality and so on, yeah. you, have to, you have to recognize some overhang in the beliefs of people. Yeah, And I think it, it was important for the more radical French revolutionaries to get that element out, to kind of expunge France of that counter-revolutionary element. Right. So that the institutions can be created under which this general will emerges and is recognized as having emerged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess would the Hobbesian critique of that be that there's no such thing as a general will in any state. Well, that, yeah, that would be Hobbes's position. But yeah. also, you'll also see one of the things that kind of emerges in the French Revolution is this talk of, of 
peoples and nations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As the kind of as the kind of unit, because yeah. when you're thinking about it in terms of a city state, you don't necessarily have a unit that you could attach a general will to that would be of a scale necessary to support having this kind of discussion in a French context. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So to speak about it in France, they need something to kind of replace the city as a, as a concept, you know, to make, to scale the Republic up and that the concept of the nation seems to play a big role in a lot of that thought and doing it. Hmm. Yeah, and there's so some precedents for this in um, in the social contract where um, Rousseau talks about um, the general will as corresponding, in some sense, to um, the wills of discrete nations. Um, there's a passage when he's like um, saying that. One nation, he says at one point, one nation is governable from its origin, another is not so at, uh, at the end of 10 centuries. The Russians will never be really civilized because they, um, they have been civilized too early. So he already has this concept going of discrete nations and the general will as being possible for, uh, for the nation. Yeah, and you go on to see that in Hegel, who takes a, right. a certain amount of inspiration from Rousseau in his kind of national spirits. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, these kind of spirits of, of the nation. Yeah. Where does that come from? Does that come from the general will, do you think? Or is it the general will that comes from the nation thinking? Or is it some... What, what motivates Rousseau, do you think, to come to these... Uh, to, to, to come to the view that there are both discrete nations and that each of these have or can have a general will. Well, Rousseau isn't the first to be thinking about sovereignty as a kind of bottom-up thing. Right, yeah. Uh, they're, they're the popular sovereignty theorists of the Protestant Reformation oh, certainly yeah. Precede, yeah. precede Rousseau in that regard. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why he cites Calvin. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Calvin and the Calvinists. I yeah. think that the thing that is is more distinctive here, and it kind of emerges from Les Adventures du Telemark, the uh, quite influential 18th century uh, work of fiction, Yeah, is this emphasis on equality, on this process delivering you some kind of thick equality. Right. What do you mean by thick equality? Well, that it, it isn't just that, say, everybody is a member of a kind of popular sovereignty, but that this is supposed to rectify inequalities that existed. And that's kind of its principal goal. So whereas, right. say, for Calvinists, the purpose of, of doing all of this is about getting the state in the right religious direction. Right, right. Uh, and yeah, equality isn't, isn't nearly as much the central feature of the project. For Rousseau, it is going to be mainly about eliminating this political inequality. Hmm. And so he kind of makes equality a, the big ticket issue because he denaturalizes it. And in denaturalizing it, he makes it possible to turn it into this big ticket objection. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of earlier political theory, uh, and just in general, this has been true a lot in. Western political thought, but certainly a lot of earlier political theory 
insofar as it accorded with, say, natural law theory, tended yeah. to privilege the natural as inherently good. So if you right. denaturalize inequality, then that enables you to criticize it very severely. Yeah. And the opponents of Rousseau or the opponents of the French Revolution, of which there will be many during this century, will try very hard to renaturalize or defend the natural character of these inequalities, in part by trying to naturalize property relations. Yeah, yeah. Whereas for Rousseau, property is something that emerges from social, political relations. Right, right. And therefore isn't, isn't around in the natural state. And for yeah. Rousseau, the only way you can get legitimate property rights is for those property rights to arise from a general will produced through a social contract. And right. that turns what would otherwise be mere property claims into rights because those rights come with the backing of the whole. And so it, it isn't as if he completely gets rid of inequality because Rousseau doesn't believe you can totally return to the natural state. Hmm. But this is mitigated to a great degree. And yeah. I think that the specific standard Rousseau uses is that you are uh, not supposed to be in a situation in which anyone has to sell themselves to someone else. Mm. And I don't think he literally means, say, slavery there. I think he means more broadly things like slavery, serfdom, or employer-employee relationships, that no one is forced to perform work for someone else to make a living. Okay. Is that, so would that be Rousseau's utopia without... Uh, I, I don't know if he would think of it as a utopia. I, yeah. I kind of doubt that he would. I don't think that Rousseau thought of himself as a utopian. Right. Although I think in retrospect, a lot of people think of him as a utopian. But it's also in part because of the way his ideas have been picked up by other people. Mm. A lot of the people who picked up Rousseau's ideas went on to use them in a quite utopian way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm not necessarily convinced that's in Rousseau's original text. Yeah, yeah. Because Lycurgus was, you know, a person who, you know, maybe a semi-mythological person, but someone who did create a set of institutions. Yeah, yeah. Is the problem, uh, is another problem then with Rousseau that in order to get to that state where you could get beyond employer-employee relations and thus the possibility of wealth and status inequality, you would need a lot more technological development than was there at the time. Was that something that he ever reckoned with? Or I, I don't think he really ever did, uh, in part because Rousseau very much liked uh, agriculture, wanted everyone to have a plot of land, Yeah, really wasn't very keen on industry, and compared to a lot of the theorists of his time, not very keen on commerce or luxury. So I don't, I don't see Rousseau as someone who's really looking for economic or technological development. Right. And in some respects, Rousseau could be framed as someone who's kind of skeptical of a lot of the changes that are taking place around him mm. or have taken place around him, that there's some kind of remove from this society based on virtue, virtue in the sense of individuals being oriented toward the community. Yeah. rather than their own personal goals. Yeah. That this is something that's been kind of lost or been kind of damaged by the rise of commerce, the rise of, of uh, more luxury-oriented lifestyles. Yeah. 
And if you think about the other people who are writing around the same time as Rousseau, people like Montesquieu or uh, Edmund Burke or, uh, I mean, later on, Benjamin Constant, Adam Smith, David Hume, a lot of the other people in this, in this whole century, uh, a, a lot of them are thinking that virtue is not really something we can have, that we can't really build states that are built around virtue, that people aren't good enough for that, that virtue is too hard, that in this day and age, commerce is the thing that's really the driver of of, uh, human life, and it's not politics, and it's not war, it's trade, and that trade forecloses the possibility of, of ancient virtue, but it opens up lots of other possibilities that at this point people are deeply invested in and uh, we can't just just turn that off or or try to go back. Hmm. I think that's the general feeling of a lot of the theorists of the period. And Rousseau is kind of an outlier in the 18th century and in, in that he really pushes for something that I think from his point of view was more traditional and, and old old fashioned. But yet when you take this part about inequality into it, the demand for quality is not at all old-fashioned. That mm. is the thing that going forward becomes the radical element in this thought that makes Rousseau enduringly popular for so long. Yeah, yeah. And makes him an, an inspirational figure for a lot of different radical movements in the future. That claim about equality really differentiates him from those ancient republics and, and their theorists. So on the one hand, you've got this nostalgia for virtue, but on the other hand, you've got this commitment to equality. And the difficulty is how do you have these things together? Yeah. And for Rousseau, it was to fall back on, on the Lycurgus type figure. Yeah. Which I don't think is the most convincing way out. But yeah, he, he uh, talks yeah. about Calvin like Calvin could be this kind of person. Yeah. Uh, and in that way, it kind of reminds me of Machiavelli when Machiavelli is looking around for the person to unify Italy and goes, what about Cesare? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. There is a tendency for theorists at, at the time to kind of, especially rationalists uh, or, or people who have a nostalgia for Greco-Roman thought, to look around and go, where can we find these people who have played these roles historically? You know, is, is there anyone left around who could do that today? Is there anyone good enough, clever enough, yeah. great enough? to do it today. Yeah. They're kind of like, um, you know, in, in, when Plato is, is looking around, you know, in the seventh letter to see if, the, if there's someone in Syracuse who can do his project. Mm. Right? <laughs> there is this tendency to look around and go, is there someone? Is there someone who can be the leader yeah. that we need? Yeah. Uh, oh, so does it turn out that both Rousseau and McKinnon need... For both their um, forms of inequality that they object to to uh, be overcome, uh, they need technological development of one form or another. In McKinnon's case, to change like human nature in some way, um, if sex inequality is grounded in nature and is inevitably a product of that. And in Rousseau's case, to overcome wage labour. And is the, you, yeah. could, you could certainly make that argument. They don't themselves make that, right. those arguments. Yeah. But yeah. you could certainly make that argument, Edmund. Um, they are looking for something that's more consistent with the time in which they're living in. Yeah, yeah. 
with their own context and and also to some degree, uh, especially in Rousseau's case, with what has worked in the past Mm. or what Rousseau believes has worked in the past. Mm. And meanwhile, people like Montesquieu are taking precisely the opposite line and trying to say, no, 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 uh, you can't do these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. So it's a quite intense debate over what is possible and to what extent the ancients have solutions to modern problems and to what extent they don't. Yeah. I always kind of like to say that the American Revolution is very, very much a Montesquieu sort of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the French Revolution is much more Rousseauian, and that is Mm. is to a large, large degree the difference between the two. But I don't want to give the impression that I think that, say, uh, Montesquieu's project is is the same as the American project, or that Rousseau's project is the same as the French, because of course, you know, Montesquieu has a king in his in his system, yeah, and the Americans do not. And Rousseau may have really been thinking about this as a city state project, and the um, the French revolutionaries really try to scale it up in a big way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think we can take away that's particularly helpful from McKinnon and um, Rousseau? What, what do you think are the chief insights they might have for today? Well, I think that the place in a political theory where you locate the origins of inequality makes a big difference hmm. for how that theory will then eventually propose to deal with that inequality, right? Yeah, yeah. So the fact that McKinnon naturalizes it makes it quite difficult for her to propose a convincing way out Yeah, without some kind of theory of how we change nature or how the state makes up for nature. Yeah, Uh, And given that the state arises up out of nature, it seems difficult to then turn around and say how the state can overcome nature. Yeah. Especially once you've equated the state with the dominating force. Mm. So in, in McKinnon's case, with maleness, if the state is masculine, if it is male, then the state can't deliver, right? In right. the same way that for, under a lot of, say, Marxist theories that frame the state as the capitalist state. Yeah, if yeah. the state is the capitalist state, then the state can't deliver you socialism and you have to do something else. Right. Yeah. Because if the state is fully captured by these interests, by... Uh, the interests of a Firestonian sex class or by a Marxian economic class, then, yeah, it's not possible for other classes to try to uh, displace that power if the state is already there and it's already captured. But, right, if it has yeah. this essential, essential character to it that isn't changeable. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah, and then it's hard to see how you yeah. get out. And that's the problem with pre-political inequality that it makes it impossible to overcome with the state, or at least very difficult to overcome unless right. you see some kind of means of changing nature. And that yeah, technological arguments, like those you you yeah. ventured, could be the kinds of things that might change nature. But it's hard to imagine, short of quite transformative change. Yeah. Human nature, or at least the natural condition changing, yeah. because of course, human beings, it's hard to know how much of our behavior is really the result of our nature and how much of it is the result of the condition that we're in. Right. So if, yeah. you, if you don't like the, the notion of a human nature, uh, you can instead, I think, uh, more positively use 
the frame human condition, because there are certain background conditions of human life that have been in force for, I think it's pretty hard to argue, say, for instance, the Habesian criteria of scarcity, subjectivity, and natural equality with respect to capacity to harm one another. Uh, those conditions have been in force mm. pretty much everywhere in pretty much every circumstance. It's hard to think of a way of, you know, short of quite radical technological change of not existing in a condition where there's some level of scarcity or not existing in a condition where there's some level of subjectivity. Mm. So if it's bound to the condition, then you need some kind of story about how that condition is going to change. Right. If you don't bind it to the condition, however, that doesn't mean you're home free because in Rousseau's case, he sees inequality as an interloper thing that shows up through a process of corruption mm. that corrupts the natural state. But that doesn't mean that Rousseau gives us a straightforwardly highly probable story of how you get rid of it, because since it is then socially constructed, there are a bunch of institutions that are involved in that socialization process that all have to be changed. Yeah. And it's quite difficult to change all of them. So regardless of whether you see this as natural or sociological, I don't think in either case it's very easy to just get rid of it. No, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, very often there's been a tendency for people to get into debates about whether stuff comes from human nature. And the assumption is if it comes from human nature, you can't change it. And if it doesn't come from human nature, it's easy to change. And I don't think that's right. Hmm. Either way, or if you think there's some combination of the two things at work, whether it's one, the other, or both, it's not going to be very easy. Yeah. Any kind of effort to really change the way people behave is not easy. Right, right. And does that give rise to the question of priorities about what kind of things uh, are going to be more likely to change what you're aiming to change? Because I guess the, the, the risk is that in identifying multiple different forms of inequality, that um, people try to latch on to every aspect of society and lose, um, lose sight of what really needs changing fundamentally to get these other things to change. Yeah, yeah. What, where you, what you prioritize matters a great deal because whenever you're trying to do anything in politics, you only have so much energy. You only have so much force that you can wield in any particular direction. Mm. Yeah. And oftentimes it's a matter of, of kind of core instinct or core impulse, where you, which particular causes you pick out as the things that are the most central, where you can make the most difference. Yeah. Um, what would you, I, I know you have a, a set of categories that you like to lay out as the options yeah. for answering that question. What, what do you think the options are, Edmund? Right. So I think there are kind of roughly four categories that can be um, given for um, historical change. One is technology, uh, uh, the way in which humans transform nature to meet our needs. Uh, so everything from the technological change in uh, spears and projectiles 200,000 years ago um, to industrialization and automation, etc. So that's technology, um, which 
is the yeah the productive forces the forces of production is what marxists call that um and then there's the state um the mode of organization the political relations um and that's to do with both coercion and legitimation um both using uh, threats and sanctions and um, persuasion and manipulation and yeah through constructing both coercive power and legitimation stories to construct consent for that power that's what the state is the monopoly of legitimate coercion is what weber calls that and then you've got class inequality and that's the the other thing that marxists like to focus on um based on relations of economic um um coercion between um the owners of capital and the people have to work for the owners of capital wage laborers and capitalists or before that peasants and landlords um, and then the last thing which has become increasingly popular as the driving force in history ala hegel is culture um the mode of socialization the way of bringing people um up through ideas and through um education which isn't the same as the state legitimation because state legitimation includes those those ideas which are state facing um as as your term benjamin uh, state facing ideas tend to um be different from ideas which aren't state facing like ideas and entertainment we you could argue that the ideas which someone might get from um seeing a superhero movie aren't the same as the ideas that they get about democracy the ideas which they might accept as part of the state's legitimacy so yeah overall i'd say there are about these four bundles um tech the state class and culture um the modes of production organization distribution and socialization and people place different weights on them depending on their theoretical background marxists place the most weight on tech and class barbarians um follows a max weber on the state and people who follow hegel on culture and so yeah there are different emphases and then you've got nature underlying all this that that related most closely to technology natural scarcity natural subjectivity um but yeah these are the, those four categories are the main social categories um which people may or may not place different weights on and i guess some people want to say that they all matter to the same extent um somebody who criticizes um catherine mckinnon um is nancy fraser and she's more of a marxist feminist but she's a marxist feminist who wants to take some insights from max weber too and say that you've got you know politics and the economy and culture but they all matter to the same extent fraser argues and in her most recent book um capitalism a conversation in critical theory um oh sorry her, her latest big book um, she argues that you've got all these um different bases of power nature politics economy culture and she wants to say they all matter to the same extent so we need to do all of them at once um but i guess then the difficulty is what happens when they come into conflict uh, and what happens when getting them all through it, through at once means you don't get any of them through and and trying to push one or two of them through might be easier and might help to push the others to uh, through um to in the end as well so i guess that's the question um 
which of these should you prioritize and whether you should prioritize anything at all. And I think what we can say is that the difficulty with saying everything matters is when everything matters, nothing matters and nothing really changes. Because usually in history, something changes and other things change. So I guess at the end of the day, maybe that's the question, which of these should be prioritized? And I think that's a question that depends both on history and evidence and also on your theory of human nature and what kind of aspects of human nature um, matter the most based on scarcity and other conditions. So that's my rambling monologue about tech, the state, class and culture. <laughs> um, what uh, that's think? an interesting, uh, kind of interesting quad split there. Uh, it's an interesting frame to work with. And I think that one of the things that's difficult is that when we're deciding what to do, especially in a society that you know resembles what Rousseau describes as one with amor propra, you know, one where we are kind of heavily individuated and and uh, alienated from each other and alienated from some notion of general will. Mm. Uh, it's difficult to work collaboratively or collectively on the project of trying to do something about inequality. And so we tend to approach it from an individual standpoint. And when you're approaching it from an individual standpoint, which of these things is the one where it looks like the individual could make a discrete intervention most easily? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's culture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's quite difficult for an individual to change the relationship among classes. It's quite difficult for an individual to change the way the state operates. It's quite difficult for an individual to single-handedly change the fundamental technological situation for society as a whole. I'm not talking about, you know, developing an app. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is easy to, say, make a tweet, write a blog post, yeah. <laughs> make a podcast episode. It's easy to make a cultural contribution. Right. And when you have a society that is heavily individuated uh, and siloed and atomized, then the cultural contribution will look like the thing that is nearest to hand where you can actually do something. Yeah. But that may be one of the deceptive elements of, of culture, that it, because everybody can do it, then it's very easy for everybody to cancel everybody else out. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. the the things that might make more of a difference uh, are more rarely things that any one person or any one organization is able to straightforwardly get a handle on. Mm. There may only be rare occasions for an individual or a group or a collectivity to make a real significant change to the technological situation or the state situation or the balance of classes. Yeah. It may not be something that is reducible to one person or one person's choices or courses of action. Yeah. And very often, I think, in, in a society that has a lot of this individualism going on in it, it's difficult for us to take seriously changes that are bigger than any one person. We don't feel like we have agency in those changes. Yeah, yeah. And so we're reluctant to view those, the changes that do occur as changes that we're part of. Yeah. They don't feel like ours because they feel like something that occurs outside of us. Yeah. And so we don't feel like we make a difference in those things, even when we contribute to them in small, imperceptible ways. Right. I think, yeah, it's certainly the case that with 
the states and institutions seem quite sclerotic at the moment. They don't seem to be um, open to change to many people. We've been going through a patch a few decades in Western democracies where there's been a rough consensus about how to manage technology um, and what kind of um, what kind of class distributions emerge from states' policies. Um, and yeah, now, although there has been since the financial crisis an opening of alternatives to um, the current ways of um, structuring the state and of distributing wealth, um, these alternatives haven't really got their way into the state yet. States still seem to be um, relatively stuck, and maybe that's why penetrating the yeah. state is hard, and yeah. that's why Rousseau wants Lycurgus, right? Because yeah. Lycurgus just completely transforms the state, and if you can just completely transform the state, then of course you can completely transform class, and you can completely <laughs> transform culture, yeah. and that's what Rousseau wants. Rousseau wants to totally reorganize the state. And if he can totally reorganize the state, then he can totally reorganize both class and culture. Yeah. And I guess some people would say, okay, let technology liberate us. But then the problem is that even if technology, um, because humans do, uh, above all else, need to survive in order to have these other needs, uh, technological change is still only possible um, when it's politically managed in some way. You need some kind of organization to manage that development. And if we're reaching a stage now where technological change is not necessarily going as fast or as slow or uh, as we want or in the right direction, then the, the question remains, you know, how would you get that going again in your desired direction? If the state doesn't change, if the structures don't change, then even if technology does have some kind of primacy in history, then you still need some kind of unlocking of the political structures to uh, to free up the technological development. So technology can't save us if it's already being uh, vetted by the political relations. Right, but people often look to technology to do precisely that, yeah, right? So, yeah. so just as, as culture is the thing that everybody always feels like they can make a cultural intervention, yeah. even if that cultural intervention isn't very significant. The thing that everybody feels, especially in modern industrial society, the thing that everybody feels will eventually change, whether anybody wants it to or not, is technology. Yeah, yeah. And so when everything else feels locked up and nothing else seems to matter, then people wait for technology to change the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. So yeah. culture is the thing that you always have to be involved in. You always have to, you individually, make the contribution, right? Right. When it's culture. Yeah. <laughs> but technology is the thing that no one seems to have to be involved in. We just wait for technology to change. <laughs> And no one ever asks for the, you know, the state to play really much of a directing or guiding role in technological development. That's just something that the Silly Valley people will take care of. Are you saying and Andrew Yang won't save us, Benjamin? <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, but that's the thing, like even Andrew Yang, who wants a state that engages with technology quite a bit, he's not looking for the state to guide the technological research of Silicon Valley firms. He's looking for the state to make a social adjustment to socially facilitate technological change that he thinks is already happening. Right. Even though productivity hasn't taken off yet, it it isn't happening yet, but he's anticipating, he expects will happen. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. quite mu- quite make much sense when uh, often the people most obsessed by technology propose answers that won't actually develop the technology. Uh, like w- with Andrew Yang's idea of replacing like the welfare state with a tiny universal basic income, that's not exactly going to stimulate demand, is it? <laughs> it's just going to suppress the the power of labor more generally and thus repress demand in some way, which seems to be counterintuitive, because if you wanted to grow technology, you would more make labor more expensive. You would increase wages to increase demand, to increase investment and increase technological development. So even these tech obsessives don't seem to have great ideas of how the state can manage technological development. Well, we could, we could, we could get into the political economy of Andrew Yang. Yeah. And, uh, there are other places where where I've done that, uh, you, you know, some people, if, if you want to read more about Andrew Yang's political economy, you can check out my blog at benjaminstudebaker.com. I, I'm sure at some point or another, I wrote a piece about UBI and, and issues with it. I think I wrote a couple of pieces about UBI, actually, uh, and some of the issues with it as formulated by Yang. Um, but yeah, it is, it is just difficult to straightforwardly make the intervention that gets rid of rid of the inequality. I mean, right. then you've got, you know, on, on the other side of the spectrum, people like Walter Scheidel, who just think that it's, it's completely not doable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Walter Scheidel in his, um, The Great Leveler proposes that the only way you can deal with inequality is, is massive disruption. Yeah. And that nothing else, nothing else has historically made a difference. Of course, the key word there is historically. And the question is, will things ever be different in the future? Will yeah. we ever come to a point where circumstances are different? And that enables things that previously would not have been possible. Right, yeah. And that's why the emphasis on technology is interesting, because it's something that uh, meant that for the ancients, the fact that technological development was so low meant that they paid attention to classes and to distribution of class power, but they never considered the possibility of overcoming that. They consider the possibility of the poor ruling in a political sense, but not of ultimately eliminating wealth inequality. Um, in part because to do that, you would either need to uh, abolish states and go back to undergathering, or you'd need to fast forward to a stage where technological development is sufficiently high to automate wage labour and go into a post-work equal society. Uh, yeah, it seems that the ancients mainly thought about society as a relation between state and class on your on your yeah. quad model. Right. And culture comes out of the state for yeah. them, and technology is, is a static force that doesn't really get factored in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that makes a lot of ancient political thought rather interesting is yeah. how much it's focused around the collectivity and the way the collectivity works as a system. It's a little bit structural functionalist in right. the language of, say, someone like a, a Durkheim. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's much more kind of holistic the way they understand societies. And now we have a much more atomized way of looking at things, and that results in this kind of individuated cultural lens. Yeah, yeah. Where each person is supposed to culturally kind of be the change that they wish to see. There is a slightly better version of that, which is, uh, hor- which is, I would describe Nancy Fraser's view as a kind of horizontal structural functionalism. She argues that each of these spheres have equal priority, which is why we need to focus on each of them all at once. Uh, but then I guess the ancients, even if they forgot about technology because it wasn't growing much, um, could be conceived as... Uh, Vertical structural functionalists, they, they placed the state at the centre of things um, and the, the state is the manager of these other things. Although at the same time, I guess class might be something that ancients well, might they are, They're always worried about class potentially infiltrating the state and messing it up. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing that the ancients always worry about. Yeah. The possibility that the way the state is designed could not uh, be sufficient for preventing its decadence. Yeah, and Sallust is quite worried about this so, and describes that as one of the causes of the fall of the Republic, that corruption of virtue due to wealth inequality. Um, and, and you see this in um, the numerous distributional conflicts following the, um, the, the last war with Carthage and the rise of debt and the enriching of the wealthy and then the then some sectors of the ruling class allying with um uh with the plebs and these conflicts leading gradually to the eventual collapse of the republic and that's something that Salafs and others are quite concerned about that yeah um, yeah for the because for these guys the classes will remain in in good balance yeah provided that all of the people in the classes have the virtues and that means that they're adequately oriented toward the good of the city yeah yeah at, or the good of the republic but of course the problem is and, and plato articulates this very well there are lots of people who aren't going to have these virtues mm. And Aristotle, I think, makes the same the same case a little bit differently, but a, a similar case, that there are lots of people who aren't going to have these virtues. And in some ways, states have to deal with this reality and make up for it in some way yeah. in the way they're constructed. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that this question of whether the culture is virtuous or decadent is a function of how the state is designed. Right, yeah, yeah. It's not about... I mean, it's, you occasionally find the Roman author who will pitch the individual as, as causing trouble yeah. or spreading it. But for most of the ancient theorists, the individual is a creation of and emerges up out of the state. And a yeah. quality state produces quality individuals. Yeah. So when the individuals start going wrong, you look to the state structure yeah. to see how it is misproducing them. Uh, and that's something I think that uh, that's an area where I think we really could learn something from from the ancients because of their reluctance to make it about individual choice. They tend to look very deeply into the deeper causes. Yeah, yeah. And this is also a lesson for people who pay attention to class inequality that um, perhaps one of the factors that led Karl Marx to taking um, tech and class rather than tech, the state and class 
as part of the base of society um, might have been that you know, in the 19th century, the role of the state, and we talked about this just a bit before the podcast, was less clear um, with what Polanyi described as the, the great transformation and the disembedding of markets from political control. It looked a lot like the economy was this fundamental force in society which determined the state, whereas in fact all along it was the state that was structuring markets and it was the fact, as Walter Schiedel describes in his latest book, um, Escape from Rome, that there were multiple different states emerging in the um, early modern period and competing with each other um, that drove um, the changes to the economy. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of the theorists of the um, 18th century and 19th century tend to think of this luxury society as something which is creating an alternative purely economic power structure yeah. that rivals or displaces the political structure. Yeah, yeah. And so therefore the state takes on a more marginal role. Yeah, yeah. In this, in this thinking. But I think what has subsequently been revealed is that the state was, in many stages, quite heavily involved, that the way that all of this was kept running, especially coming out of the interwar period and the Depression, was with even more hevel, heavily uh, state, state intervention and even, an even bigger state presence in the economy and in society. Yeah, yeah. And so it was always a mistake to, to think that the state had gone away or that commerce and trade had, had overcome politics or made it such that politics didn't matter, that you could live a thoroughgoingly private life, yeah. whether in an economic sense or in a family sense that's separate from politics. Yeah. And the correctives are Marxism and feminism, each correcting. Um, and I think they work best when they go together. Yeah. Um, the belief that in some way, shape, or form, spheres of life had been depoliticized. Yeah. Yeah. When really those spheres reflected a lot of choices. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where, while I, I don't agree with the kind of gender binary element in the way that McKinnon structures it, I think that there's some value to what she's saying about you know, where, where the state is allegedly silent, it is still acting. The choice to make something permissible and neither prohibited nor obligatory is still a political choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the more uh, recent third wave feminist turn towards the personal as political and the emphasis on uh, genders, um, Judith Butler called performativity as a series of um, actions and performances that create gender in some way uh, is a as a theatre in which the actions are creating gender rather than the other way around. Um, yeah, gender roles, gender, gender roles. roles that affect everybody, uh, regardless of where they are on the gender spectrum, they affect everybody with people at different locations on that spectrum being affected in different ways. Yeah. But rather than it being a straightforward oppressor-oppressed relationship, a kind of broader system of norms that is larger than any one individual or group. And that's what I think we're, we're really missing a lot of in contemporary political thought, these kind of irreducibly structural yeah. problems and, and phenomena that are larger than any 
given individual or group and larger than the sum of, of actions yeah. or choices. Yeah. Holes that are larger than the sum of their parts. Is the risk sometimes that some of these stories leads to the state being withered away in the theory as some kind of um, uh, uh, Michel Foucault-style metastructure becomes the emphasis above the state itself. Yeah, I think that's the kind of, uh, at the thin end of, of a Judith Butler type account, you end up in, in the Foucault space right. where everything becomes uh, in some way an expression of power relations and therefore power becomes j- just a way of describing reality rather than a way of framing how decisions are taken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at that point, I think it, it can become a little bit overly vague. Yeah. The, the question is, what are the factors that make a big difference? And it doesn't yeah. have to be the case that particular individuals individually have the ability to shape those factors. Yeah. But what are the factors that make a difference? Yeah. And what are the changes that matter, that, that make different things possible? Yes, yes. And I think you can talk about that without giving individuals blame or credit or a bunch of agency. I think that that is tended to make it hard for people to see right. the, the bigger picture. So, because the, uh, the stuff that you can affect as an individual is always so much smaller than the set of things that are going on. Yeah, yeah. And when it comes to structures... Is it reasonable to say that uh, while people have emphasised in the past the primacy of culture or the primacy of class, that these things tend to not be, uh, in fact, pre-political because it's the states that distribute wealth among classes that set property rights um, and it's culture that emerges from these two things. For instance, cultural ideas about race in the late 19th century um, as ideas which emerged to um, legitimate the kinds of colonial um, capitalist accumulation going on at the time, rather than as something that existed before those states and class distributions and something um, some kind of primordial um, Protestant ethic kind of thing that causes big changes in the political economy. Yeah, I think we often have to look for the stuff that is, the, the background forces that are large enough that you have to really question whether there is any one particular point from which they can be affected by human beings. Sure. And if they can be affected by human beings, it will be the places that centralize the most capacity to demand collective action, to demand the actions of lots of different people all at once. And the state tends to be the thing that has the capacity to move lots of people all at once to act. Mm. And there are some problems that are too big, some issues that are too big even for it, where it can't marshal enough collective action to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Climate change, I think, recently is, is very much the kind of problem where even, even a state, even a quite powerful state, cannot individually marshal enough collective action yeah, yeah. to make a difference. 
But if there, if there is any possibility of human beings collectively having an impact, it will often be at the level of state, simply because otherwise you can't get enough people to act in concert all at once. Right, yeah, no, sure. Uh, and even if the, the technological change might be um, allowing us to get to this place, it's only through the state that you could unlock further desirable technological change. Um, because uh, the state is the, uh, yeah, the first organization in society. And it's through that that you can manage, um, both on the one hand, the technological development, which underpins the whole thing, but, and also distribute economic resources um, in a way that you think is desirable. And people often worry about the state being able to do too much. And of yeah. course, there is yeah. a case for that. Yeah. But there also has to be some worry about things that where no, nobody has the capacity to act. Yeah, yeah. Cases where, there, where no one has the capacity to act, not even the state. I guess that's a difficulty on the international scale, that as we transition from a unipolar world with the US as the one pole towards... Um, in, at least in the 90s or something like that, towards a world now which is becoming increasingly multipolar with lots of different powerful states, there's a risk that we might get to a stage where there's so much um, dissipation of power internationally between states that no one state can really do anything in the end and that states are, are paralysed um, not by too much interstate hierarchy, but by the lack of any powerful state or powerful group of states to do something. Yeah, yeah. You always have to be worried about these cases where the problem is too big for everybody, where yeah. we lack the institution that is necessary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to go back to that problem of stuff being difficult for the state to intervene in, is it arguable that culture is one of those areas where if the state tries to punch too hard and to use the sovereign fist too much, it, it'll delegitimate those interventions and thus delegitimate interventions in other areas? Well, I, I would say that there has been some difficulty in trying to get the state to go into the home. that There are a lot of people who I think agree with the core feminist claim that the state needs to go into the home to affect the way people are socialized, uh, to affect the way people relate to each other yeah. in family structures, that the way that this happens when the state doesn't intervene is not okay. And yet when you try to talk about what that intervention would look like, it's quite difficult to come up with a straightforward suite of policies yeah. Yeah. that are appealing. And similar, whenever we talk about the state intervening in, in say, the kind of art that is made, uh, you, know, po you know, Plato's saying, get the imitative poets out of the city because they are leading the kids astray. You know, those kinds of arguments are quite difficult to make in our society. And some of that's because of the influence of liberalism, but some of it is, is just because it's very hard for us to feel comfortable with 
those decisions because it's it's not clear to us what precisely the effect is of consuming this stuff. Yeah. Uh, if there is an effect. And yeah. There's a lot of dispute about what precisely the effects are of different kinds of cultural arrangements. Right. It's it's difficult to to get people to agree with this. And so I think while there is a consensus that there's a lot that's wrong with our culture, it's also very difficult to form any kind of consensus as to what the state should do about it. Yeah. And so this is why very often the cultural space is left to individuals uh, on a kind of social movement level. Yeah. And that's part of what makes it an appealing place to try to make change yeah. because the state doesn't bother to go there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And if the state doesn't go there, then that leaves a little bit of a vacuum for enterprising individuals and groups who want to become cultural power brokers. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's also a deeper uh, issue that that participation in public life may be something that we ought to learn from the ancients as something that's valuable. But I guess even for the ancients, it wasn't just participation in public life that was valuable. It was also having leisure for stuff like contemplation, stuff that isn't uh, controlled by the state in some way. And I guess maybe the point of having culture is on some level to have an arena that is not um, explicitly political. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think a kind of contemplative space. Right. Of course, the, the difficulty is giving people the actual leisure and the actual resources to make good use of that space. And that, that becomes a distributive question. Right. And that, that's where we get back to equality. That's, you, know, you need equality of access to that. Right, yeah, yeah. If you don't have that, then the space becomes dominated by a narrow group of power brokers, right. often power brokers who come out of affluent positions and have the resources necessary to make the bulk of the cultural and discursive interventions. Yeah, and then the class... Inequality invades the cultural inequality. Yeah, yeah. And, and replicates itself right. in the cultural space. Yeah. yeah, we always have to be worried about that. So even if um, technology might be in some respect uh, logically prior to the state as that which enables states to form in the first place, um, it's also something that's managed by the state, um, meaning the state is still the thing to look at if you want to Promote to, to a point. technological development. Right. To a point. Okay. And I think one of the ways in which technology has kind of gotten away from us is that we have a lot of you know, carbon emissions, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions yeah. as a result of our technology. And we don't seem to be able uh, very easily to deal with that from the level of the state. Yeah. Yeah. And if we are compelled to form some kind of new set of political institutions to deal with it, it will be technology that will have compelled us to do that. Yeah. By creating the emissions that are, are necessary to put us in this position where we have to confront the limitations of our institutions. Right, right. Uh, and so it's the, because it's the state that we have more ability to directly go through or have an impact on than technology. It, it, it may be through focusing our attention on that that we can try to... Um, change the kinds of technology, even if the kinds of technology that we have are the underlying drivers of these changes. 
And I guess- Yeah, yeah. and it's often technology interfacing with the fact that we don't have, say, a global state. If you had a global state that that was quite powerful, that would give you more ability to control technology. But in the absence of that, with lots of different states, there tend to be incentive games that play out for states with respect to technology that prevent any given individual state from having a whole lot of influence over the general direction of technological development. So on that note, it is perhaps the kind of class distribution that's ideal uh, determined by what kinds of legitimation stories we need to build consent for more international political structures to address stuff like climate change and the kinds of legitimation stories uh, we need um, to build up consent for those political structures may determine what kind of class distribution is ideal. Well, now you'd be talking about grand, big, totalizing attempts to solve the big problems. And, well, we'd need a whole other episode to, yeah. to really dig into that. But I think for, for today, we've about come to the edge of our discussion of inequality and, and kind of its character and whether it has a kind of natural origin, a pre-political origin, or a more social, more thoroughly constructed origin. And and you can kind of see how the way that you frame this does profoundly affect where you tend to go in Edmund's quadripartite structure, yeah. uh, where you go to try to influence all of this, and uh, you know, whether you happen to have a view of it that's similar to mine or Edmund's or not. Uh, gives you a little bit of a map through which you can think about some of these things. Mm. So with all of that said, uh, thank you guys so much for listening and uh, look forward to doing another one of these before too long. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.